Hello, welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by our senior writer, Leah Leibowitz. Helen Wilson. Yes, you too. And our deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Yo. Today, we will be talking with graphic designer Ben Ostrauer, who helped create Bernie Sanders' logo, and with our guest Gentile of the Week, Chris Eigeman, whom you know from movies like Metropolitan and Barcelona, not to mention Gilmore Girls, which I never watched, but... That surprises me. There's a fan base out there. That's how my wife would know him. Uh, But first, a little news of the Jews. Drake performed at a bat mitzvah in New York City on Saturday night. It was the party for bat mitzvah girl Gigi Ashkenazi, whose father is Ben Ashkenazi, who apparently owns a lot of real estate in New York. I did not know who Ben Ashkenazi was, but I had to go find out who's the dad who brought in Drake to play at his daughter's bat mitzvah. You mean who's the cool dad? Yeah, the, the super best cool dad. Who's, who's the best dad ever in the history of dads? Yeah, Ben Ashkenazi. Also probably maybe a mom involved as well. I don't know. Yeah, but mom doesn't own uh, the Marriott East Side, which apparently dad owns. Which is where uh, Rabbi Mayor Kahana was assassinated. Is that is that right? <laughs> yes, it is. That was some awesome trivia. Only on Unorthodox. I, I'm confident saying we're the only podcast where you would find out that the dad of the bat mitzvah girl who hired Drake to play at her bat mitzvah. Drake and Kahana. Right, one, owns one degree the of hotel separation. where Mayor Kahana was assassinated. The best thing is like there's a video and she's just like rocking out right next to him is like like is not like the kind of not doesn't seem to be shy or like enamored by the celebrity just like rocking out just totally. dancing. And Drake's wearing like a long sleeve polo. Like suit up for this. <laughs> like you couldn't have worn like a I don't know. Stephanie as our senior Drake correspondent. Yes. I was curious, do you feel like this hurts his brand a little bit? I mean, he's now he's now a bat mitzvah performer? No, because Let's just say I think his going rate, according to TMZ, for private private parties is three hundred thousand to six hundred thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. I don't think this. First of all, this made sense as an offer. But look, he's you know a nice Jewish boy at heart, and I think he probably thought it was funny and thought he would have fun. And and I I think this actually in, this is exactly what he does that endears him to to so much of. I don't know the the, the music listening population. He'll go to a bar mitzvah and he'll not be not you know he'll like really get on just like hang out with the bar mitzvah girl. Well, this is a gaggle of, you know, shouting 12-year-olds really that different when it's in, you know, a stadium than in, you know, the Rainbow Room. Stephanie, remind us again what what the entertainment was for your bat mitzvah. The entertainment at my bat mitzvah, there was like, you know, um, the, the bar mitzvah band and some, some great dancers, but I was very, you know, I was just like a little shy. So I don't know. I don't know that I really enjoyed it. As I much. had a Batman-shaped cake. Sorry, what? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. I didn't know that secular Tel Aviv Israelis had bar mitzvahs. Oh, my God. Yes, uh, absolutely. Was there a general Superman th- or superhero theme or Batman theme or was no, it just the Batman su- superhero theme? Like, what, was I a child? No, it was Batman. <laughs> he was a man. <laughs> it was a man. Yeah, Batman. Batman. That's right. It wasn't Bat Boy. It wasn't a it was Bat Batman. child. It was a Bat mitzvah. Well, spe- <laughs> Boom. S- speaking of... Um, not quite men and mere little boys. Historians now say that Adolf Hitler may have had a micro penis. In their sorry, book- Mark. In the in the interest of accuracy, a deformed micro penis. No, yes, no, yes. he didn't necessarily have a micro penis. According to a book that came out last year, that like someone at the Daily Mail like picked up yesterday for some reason. He, this book it was called like Hitler's Last Day. It said he he possibly suffered from hypospadias, which is a birth defect that apparently affects one in two hundred men. Where you basically pee. I don't know why I'm the one explaining this. 
Just someone else. Someone else take over. All this right, one. you you <laughs> have to you urinate imagine? from Having a hole out. that is Do not at the tip like, of the penis. The, the mother of the scholar whose book this was, like, <laughs> so Mrs. Cohen, congratulations on Jonathan's PhD. What is this book about? Well, uh, Mrs. Levy. <laughs> It's about Hitler's deformed micropenis. It should be said that this book by Jonathan Mayo and Emma Craigie is not actually about... No, it's like a tiny detail. Oh, yeah, no, now it is the book about a deformed micropenis. I will never get tired of seeing Hitler's deformed micropenis for as long as I live. The micropenis jump is that part of some people who have this condition also have a micropenis. But the thing is, people are loving this story because somehow this idea, like, well, first of all, the obvious joke is like, okay, that, that explains a lot. You know, that's why probably the guy was pissed off. Uh, but pissed off. Oh, I didn't realize oh. I was doing that. But it, I was that's why at... <laughs> he took over his Yuri nation. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's like something really weird where everyone's like, "Oh, like Hitler," and he also apparently also had one testicle. So there's this whole like attack on Hitler's manhood that's been going on in the past 24 hours, as though it's sort of like they're like, "Oh yeah, Hitler was you know like." Uh, overcompensating much or something like that. What do you call a tiny Austrian man with a deformed micropenis? The Fuhrer. A, a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Liel will be here all week. But, but the, the, um, the implication, obviously, or the inference that people want to draw is the reason that he needed to conquer the world and murder millions of Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and dissidents. because his baby penis. Because he, you know, he, was, he was insecure about his manhood. And I, I don't know how we feel about that leap, but I want to share a basically unrelated um, theory of mine, which will shed some light in a circuitous way on this topic. Now, I'm five, seven, and three quarters, which I think of as fairly short. And... I have always wanted to be in solidarity with the short people of the world because I think that I'm among them, right? That's my that's my marginalized status, okay? I mean, Jew and short. I was about to say, because <laughs> Jew clearly wasn't enough. Right, I didn't have enough marginalization. And one time in college, I made a short person joke to someone who was about five foot, five and a half, maybe five, six. And he looked at me and he said, fuck you, Oppenheimer, and just walked away. And I thought I was making a short person joke from one short person to another. But residing below the five foot six line, looking up at me at nearly five eight, he didn't see it that way at all. And I've noticed in my life since then that some of the people who hate me the most for reasons inexplicable, right? People I've done nothing to, but who have hostility toward me. There aren't a lot of these people, but we all have some in our lives, I think. They tend to be men in the like five, six range. And I think there's a kind of narcissism of small differences thing where I'm just tall enough that I make them feel their shortness more than if I were 5'11 or six foot. The narcissism of small differences would be a great uh, title of a Hitler biography. <laughs> so I just, you know, I, I think that the these sort of insecurity things work in incredibly mysterious and subtle ways. And I wouldn't be shocked if the undescended testicle combined with having to urinate out of the, the, the shaft, the shaft rather than the tip. Or the base in some cases. Is in fact responsible for what Stephanie's family suffered in Poland. Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, big jump. We get some amazing mail at Tablet, and one of the letters that we got this week was right up Liel's. Uh, birdhouse, Liel. Do you want to you want to 
Tell us, tell our readers. This from the unimprovably named Robin Winning. <laughs> I'll have you know that I was bird watching on my back patio while listening to your most recent episode. I was shocked, shocked at your dismissive attitude to bird watching, also known as birding among the consenti. No one can explain the wonders of birding to non-believers, so I won't try. I will, however, share my quiet smugness at the moment you opined about the boringness of bird watching, because at least I was in my California backyard in my shirt sleeves, enjoying the warm sun, unlike you, you East Coast biased, nature-hating bastards. As I was having these thoughts, an amazing thing happened while I was listening to the show. My oak tree was visited by a pileated woodpecker, the largest woodpecker in North America, Photo of the actual bird attached. I have never had a pileated woodpecker in my backyard, so I take it as a sign from a kind and all-knowing God, even though I'm an atheist, that he provided that woodpecker at that exact moment as a sign that he loves birders and wants us to be happy, despite the derision of the greater Jewish <laughs> podcasting community. Robin, Santa Rosa, California. Well, uh, Miss Winning, Robin, uh, <laughs> rock on, sister. I am 100% with you. As an enthusiastic, though uh, rather recent, convert to birding, um, I apologize on behalf of my ignorant colleagues who would never know the beauty of a black and white warbler, a painted bunting, or a beautiful, beautiful pileated woodpecker. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just think of the many wonders that they will never, ever appreciate, those East Coast bastards. I like that, like, the Jewish podcast media is, like, a big conglomerate. Besides, just like thinks, beyond the four of us sitting in this room. I think it says something about the mentality of the committed birder that she thinks there's a Jewish media conspiracy against birding, which but is basically is, what I mean, Robin accused us of The whole hobby being. is watching things as they go extinct. Like, <laughs> what's not Jewish about that? I was just about to ask, is birding Jewish or of Goyish? And I guess you just answered that question. Jewish. It's like, see that, because soon you won't. <laughs> but it's Goyish because it involves camping and gear. Well, also, you know, walking out to Central Park with, right. you know, some a bagel it and involved- coffee and watching a tree. A it's fine. Here's the thing about birders is um, it's a community that depends entirely on honor, right? It's an honor code, which is there's like 8 trillion bird varieties in the world. And there's actually a ranking, right, Liel, of who has seen the most of them. Well, this is this is a great opportunity to, to plug uh, an amazing book. Uh, called Watching the Skies by my friend Jonathan Rosen, uh, America's preeminent bird watcher, which gets into it. Yes, there is a life list, uh, which is a list of all the species you had seen, and people do get a bit competitive. Uh, but really, and, and this is the other, I think, great big Jewish thing about it, it encourages doubt, you know, because if you come and report a sighting, which is never uh, or, or very rarely, you know, an, a complete accuracy, you'll be asked questions, you know. Did you see these markings on the tail? Did you see, you know, what was the distance between the beak and the and the tail? Stuff like this, uh, and and you would be forced to Talmudically, kind of really consider every aspect of the bird. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I just wonder, how do you know the community is not filled with a bunch of pathological liars? Like anyone can say, yeah, I saw that. No, I don't you think see, they would tolerate that. It Robin, seems like very Robin Winning. Do you see what I have to deal with, Robin Winning? <laughs> it's exactly that kind of heartless. Heartless approach that that we have to fight against. I have to say, I didn't. Ne- I never said anything about the birders. I just said when Mark talked trash about the birders, that they would know where he was. They'd wait and they'd find him and they'd watch him. Yeah, yeah but and they'd they'd come for him. But you silently assented. I don't, was a bystander. <laughs> yeah, don't don't act like you did not support. I don't even think Robin's her real name. I think that she like got really <laughs> into birding and being a, being slightly touched. She's like, I know, I'm going to change my name from Sheila to Robin. 
Robin Winning is, you know, a hero of mine from now on. If you have uh, similar mail or dissimilar mail, you can send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. The morning try his rhythm and let your heart beat with him. Just listen to that tick a tick 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 a tick tick happy little woodpecker song. Hey, issue number two of Tablet's print magazine, which I call Tablet, just to be fancy, is about to hit the stands. It's our Passover issue. Now's a great time to subscribe. If you want the print magazine, you can text subscribe to 66866. It's a great, easy-to-remember palindrome, 66866, and we'll send you a little form, and you'll subscribe, and then you will get this unbelievably beautiful, gorgeous print magazine that is by subscription only. Subscribe to our print magazine, Tablet. Our guest due this week is Ben Ostrauer, the founder of Wide Eye Creative, a design and branding firm, which seems to have developed a specialization in websites for progressive candidates and organizations. They've helped with the branding of New Hampshire Senator Gene Shaheen and Mark Warner in Virginia and the Actors' Equity Union. And yes, his firm has felt the burn, Bernie Sanders. To find out what kind of logo a campaign should have, his firm asks candidates, among other questions, if they were a car, what kind of car would they be? Is that is that right, Ben? Or did we just read that on Google and get it wrong? Um, that is, that's pretty accurate. That is not the first question we ask. <laughs> it's, it's one of many. Um, what, what did Bernie say? What kind of car? Like a Volkswagen Beetle, 67? You know what? I would actually have to go through old paperwork to see if we, A, ask that question, and B, how that was answered. Huh. If I, I were to venture a guess, I think, I, I think he, he uh, famously said in the town hall recently that he drives a really, really small Chevy. Uh, <laughs> so I would expect that was probably the answer if there was an answer. Where do you go from there as yeah. a graphic designer? Yeah. Of course, the, the internal joke that we have is that most people, when, they ask, when they're asked this question, they say, oh, we're a Tesla. Because, of course, everyone wants to be a Tesla, right? <laughs> everyone wants to be new and efficient and streamlined and sexy. Um, of course, that's not always the right answer. Yeah, that's everyone. such an annoying answer. Yeah. I'm a it's, Chevy you know, Impala. Sometimes it's true. To be fair, sometimes it's absolutely true. So take us through this process. You know, here's your firm, and you get this amazing project. It's a 70-something-year-old socialist senator from you know, Vermont, uh, who you're supposed to make super cool. You have all, all this information. What, what does your team do next? You know, what does the brainstorm process look like? Well, I, you know, I have, to, I have to offer a little bit of context, which is that our, um, our relationship with the Bernie Sanders team um, was, was really only in, in its total infancy. This is prior to him announcing for president. Um, it was only just sort of a vague rumor that he might do that. Uh, months later, the, the rest is history. Um, but so when we were brought in, uh, we were, you know, we were tasked with the, the challenge of sort of reinventing a visual identity for a potentially national audience. And of course, uh, one of the things we want folks to do is we do a little bit of what we sort of internally call design therapy, which we, which is that we, we kind of pose a number of, uh, important sort of self-reflective questions to see how a campaign or an organization perceives of themselves and how they think they want to be perceived. It's not always how they want to be perceived that's the right approach, but it, it starts to get at motivations and, and goals that guide us through the process. So we'll start with generally a questionnaire that kind of gets at the meat of what a campaign wants to accomplish. So how do you um, move and, to the visual and, from there? I mean, for, so for example, you're using his first name, you're using blue. How do those two decisions get made? 
Well, we knew, I suppose I can disclose this, we were told early on that despite him being an independent senator at the time, uh, he was, if he was going to run for president, he was going to do so as a Democrat. And so one of the early decisions we made is that um, making sure that uh, it was unmistakable that Bernie is, in fact, running as a Democrat. So Bernie's logo has, you know, it has the star above the eye. It has the the red, white, and blue stripes going across. How do you decide how much, you know, like, aggressively patriotic stuff you want to put in there? <laughs> and how much, like, subtlety, I guess? Because they are subtle. You don't even really notice them until you take a second look. When, when we approach doing, doing branding for uh, other Senate campaigns, for example, we often steer folks away from the really what we consider to be sometimes eye-rolling conventions of stars and stripes. This was a fairly opposite scenario where we actually wanted to put in the concept of stars and stripes, you know, to really make it feel uh, kind of very typically American. Potentially the most important element of the logo, believe it or not, is, um, is the actual typography that we used on the word Bernie. Um, we specifically sought out using a, a typography choice that uh, felt both modern but also harkened back to this almost sort of uh, vintage Brooklyn-y feel. Mm-hmm. And so we actually picked a font that was developed by a Brooklyn-based typography studio. Um, and so that slab serif font is just about as Brooklyn as you can get, in my opinion. I have uh, I have a question for you. So so this is this is a election season, uh, kind of rife with political brands, right? With personalities. Uh, suppose your your assignment uh, was Trump. How do you approach that? <laughs> well, um, I think that uh, you know with with Trump in particular. You're dealing with a situation, you know, if we can abstract sort of the politics from, from that question, he's already an established brand, period, end of story. Everyone knows who he is. He has 100% name recognition. You don't need to do any heavy lifting with, with regards to a brand to tell the appropriate story. The word Trump is already imbued with so much meaning. Um, so I, in some ways, I think his logo, even though I don't think it's very attractive at all, sort of does the trick, which is it just says Trump, you know, in big, bold, you know, fat, uh, all caps letters, it just says Trump. You know, in contrast to Marco Rubio, for example, who conscientiously used all lowercase lettering as if to suggest that, you know, he's sort of a startup, that he's user friendly, right? You know, in, in the same way that like Facebook or Twitter is. I think that was very much what was intended by his, his logo. Trump is, you know, you can't, you can't imagine his name being in lowercase typography <laughs> to be more friendly. It would just it get, would like, be, autocorrected. It, would, it wouldn't ring true. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it would automatically go to caps. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sort of astonished he didn't use gold in his logo. <laughs> so but, when did logos, when did logos in these, in these campaigns become so important? And I think this is a related question. When did we just start calling presidents? I mean, when did they just start including their first names or with Obama, the O or with Hillary, just the H? I mean, when did we just drop last names completely? Or Jeb exclamation point. <laughs> right. um, uh, well, it really was Obama um, that, that um, innovated uh, the way in which we relate to politics visually. If you look at the, the evolution from John Kerry's campaign in 2004, visually, to what we saw in 2008 with Obama, it was an absolute revolution. 
um, you know, there are actual real designers, professional designers, studios working on Obama's campaign, making really refined typography choices and color choices. And the logo mark, the Obama logo mark is like, you know, it's in the Smithsonian. It's like it's, it's now one of the most iconic logos, you know, in American history. Uh, and that logo is synonymous with everything about the Obama brand that you know. I think it was when we sort of reached that moment and that became as effective as it did, it was no longer okay to default to what were very sort of boring, mundane design practices. Ben, what's the best branding and the worst branding that you see out there? Like what's the, what's the stuff that you just revere and say, oh my God, I wish I had done that. And what's the stuff where you say, "Ugh, I can't believe that ever got out into the public eye. Well, that's a great question. And I wish I was more, more prepared for that. Um, the answer to both, by the way, is Jeb exclamation point. (laughs) Actually, well, that's partially true. <laughs> no, you know what? I mean, to, to Jeb Bush's credit, I think that he, they, the campaign tried to leverage an identity that was used in Florida very effectively uh, for sort of a national audience. The problem is the world changed and the country changed. And so that brand didn't quite translate to a national audience, I think, the way that, um, way that they had hoped. Um, so, you know, a brand represents the aspirations of what a campaign or what a product wants to be. And I think that was the perfect example of why the Jeb Bush campaign failed, is because they tried to play the same play, playbook that would have worked 10 years ago in Florida. Um, and it just fell flat. Hey, Ben, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating. And final question, who are you voting for? Um, <laughs> that is none of your business. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ben. Good luck. Take care. Thank you. Our guest Gentile this week is the actor and director Chris Eigeman. He was the star of those great Whit Stillman movies like Metropolitan and Last Days of Disco. He was also in Kicking and Screaming and apparently the TV show Gilmore Girls, which I never watched but meant a lot to some people. He directed the movie Turn the River. In Last Days of Disco, his character pioneered the classy move of breaking up with women by telling them that he might be gay, a move that I'm not saying I ever used that move, but it's, it's, a, it's an important move to have in your 20s if you want out of a relationship without lots of crying and whatnot. Hey, Chris, have you ever been on a show before where you've been introduced as the guest Gentile, which we just did to you? No, I, not only have I never been introduced that way. Once you sent the invitation, I can't stop referring to myself that way. (laughs) Well, you've sent back a very funny note where I said, will you be our Gentile of the week? And you said, I'm the Gentile of every week. (laughs) (laughs) So why not? Yeah, no, I, I've, you know, I've, I've worn out the phrase and the wife is very tired of it, but I find it endlessly amusing. Uh, yeah, so, so do we. Um, so listen, we're going to get to your more recent work, but just to go back for a moment to your old Whit Stillman movies, which I adored. Um, I was surprised to read that you didn't grow up in the super rich, super waspy Whit Stillman world. Is that right? Yeah, no, I didn't. I grew up in Denver and uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't put on a cummerbund in my entire life. So, but I mean, that... <laughs> that's the thing, right? I mean, if the first time people see you, you're, you know, wearing a tuxedo and cracking wise, like some demon offspring of Scott Fitzgerald, people are <laughs> going to assume that, you know, that's, 
that's what you are. Well, some people did assume. Uh, I was I was a film school student in Tel Aviv when I watched that movie, and I got to tell you, Nick Smith, your character, is kind of a large part of why I decided to move to New York. And when I got here, I realized I was a fat, schlubby Jew. And no matter how hard I tried, like, I'm not even fitting in the Cumberbatch. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, no, I I don't know whether to say welcome or apologize, but yeah. Um, (laughs) But here is is what I wanted to know, which was, so you get cast in this movie, which is set in some sort of timeless, like, it seems to be set in the early 60s, maybe, the kind of, uh, but but it's unclear, right? It's a sort of timeless New York. And you're playing this super preppy guy who's on the, the debutante escort circuit, right? You're, you're right. escorting women to their dev balls. How did you study up, right? Like you wanted to learn mid-century New York wasp. What did you do to, to nail that character? Um, you know, that's the first piece of acting I'd really ever done, I think. I mean, I, I did a Biloxi blues that only a mother could love. Um, but I, <laughs> So I you would, remember... you'd practice by playing Jewish, basically, is, right. is what you would do. You know, I just found that guy... Nick, you know, he was just, I, he was one of the guys that would have tortured me in high school. Mm. So basically I just tried to remember all the guys that would torture me in high school and put on a tuxedo and, you know, those, those people with just unbridled confidence, um, and, and a really, really biting wit. So, I mean, that was it, but I, you know, truthfully, my whole process such as it is, is basically, just show up and know what my lines are. <laughs> you make it sound I mean, so I, easy. I, yeah, I hate to demystify it. I mean, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to guss it up with something really, really kind of in a cauldron kind of stuff. But nah, really, it isn't. I just try to have a cup of coffee and stand there. So after those films, did you ever feel like you were like being tight? I mean, it's sort of like the opposite of what we're always worried about. But like, were you ever like typecast as like a wasp? Oh yeah, totally. Was I mean, it hard? As, a, as a nice, that, that, smart, that well-bred was, person. Did that help getting yeah. roles? Did that hurt you? I mean, what is that? Well, I mean, you can rile against it as much as you want. I mean, it's still it is what it is, and it gave me, you know, I got to do stuff that I I really really loved, you know. And I didn't. I mean, I'm sure there was a time in my, you know, twenties or thirties where it, it occurred to me that you know no one's going to cast me in a movie and put a gun in my hand. I mean, unless I'm going to be, you know, the preppy slayer or something. I was going to say, I, was, I could see you as a kind of preppy sociopath in a sort of James Spader way. Like a preppy Heathers. Right, so, preppy right. Heathers. So is that why your own, the movie you wrote and, and directed and I believe produced too, right, Turn the River, is that why you kind of went as far away from, you know, it's pool sharks and... and... Yeah, I mean, but that, those were just stories that I had anyway. You know, that was a, a, a much better retelling of of the way I grew up, which is not to imply that I grew up as a pool shark or, you know, my mother kidnapped me or anything like that. But, but yeah, that's to some degree true. What's the, what's the latest project? What are you working on now? Um, it's about the kids who left Chicago and New York and went out to Los Alamos to build the bomb. But we're also, and it's a love story, but it's also very much about music. Um, those kids tended to, to really love, the, the new jazz that was coming out of, of like Dizzy Gillespie and Troy Parker. And, you know, and it's a big sweeping love story and there's spies and people die and uh, it should be good. Did you write it? I did. Um, and are, and you're also directing it, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Um, and was that, that was also true of Turn the River? 
Yeah. So which of those two processes are you more interested in? Are you, are you writing so that you have the opportunity to direct or is it that you're directing to bring the, your, your script to life or is it both? I think it's both. I also don't think it's all that dissimilar a skill set, to be honest. I think, you know, I think writing and, and directing and acting are all sort of the same thing. If you, if you look at acting as sort of wildly overcommitted first-person storytelling, it's, it's sort of the same thing. It's, it's still me wandering around in my office talking to myself. As someone who's had a, a very fucked up childhood uh, myself, I couldn't um, miss out on what you said about your own childhood. So, so Turn the River wasn't uh, a one-for-one adaptation, but it was inspired by? So say more about well, that. Well, it's just there's much, more, there's, there's much more of me in it. There's a lot of, of um, you know, the, the, there's a you know, the kind of domineering, very Catholic grandparents there's um there's all that kind of stuff so but now i'm more fascinated by your really fucked up childhood than than mine to be honest right i mean here you should know that liel's father actually was a bank robber nice a gentleman bank, bank a gentleman robber. bank he returned robber. all the money that's right that's and none of the money filtered down but i'm still i'm still kind of stunned about the um hunger strike to be perfectly honest that from whatever two episodes ago. Yes. Episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I found that to be, I found that to be harrowing, and it's uh, a great way to meet women. I got to tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a hell of an ice. You're too weak um, to do anything about it, but <laughs> but you meet the women. Yeah, Liel, Liel is um, he's our he's the one of us who lives on the edge. I would have to say. Yeah. Like, I don't think Stephanie or I, I – I don't mean to demean you, Stephanie. I don't think either one of us would last very long. Like, Yom Kippur is about the, the limits of our hunger strike. Yeah, I mean I had to eat in the middle of this podcast because I hadn't eaten anything all morning. Right. And I was right. feeling faint. So tell me I, – I have a question. So, so you seem to really be drawn based on what you just told us about the, the new project. It's called – is it still called 1943? Is that is that correct? No, it's or, called Trinity right now. Trinity. Oh, what a beautiful name. Um what is it about you that seems to be attracted to these kind of um, cataclysmic, dark, difficult relationship stories? Oh, boy. Um, uh, especially since you married your college sweetheart. <laughs> that was not in my bio, but it is 100% true. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, well, yeah, I don't know. Those, that's, I guess, just the stuff. That's the stuff that I watch. It's also the stuff that I read. And I actually don't write comedy well at all. And so once you take that off the table, once you can't do that, you start doing the other stuff. I mean, I can write the occasional joke, but um, I'm not really good at it. I believe that you sent in a question for us now that you have a panel of, of Jewish experts, world-renowned Jewish experts, about a friend of yours who wanted to convert to Judaism. What was right. it that you wanted to know? So she wanted to convert, and she wanted to convert for every right reason. She loved the holiday. She loved going to temple. She also wanted she was newly married and she wanted to convert because her husband's Jewish and to pay respect to her new in-laws. And if they raised, if they had a kid, she would want to raise them, you know, to be Jewish. And so she, she was talking to the rabbi about this and starting the process of conversion. And the one hiccup was that she's an atheist and that was a stopper, which I, I think is understandable in a way. But then the rabbi went on to say that, there are Jewish atheists because so much of Judaism is about how you live on the planet right now and, and, and exploring your life as you make your way through that actually not believing in a deity 
is not doesn't doesn't ding you. It doesn't exclude you. It doesn't disqualify you. So then she thought, well, then I should be able to convert. But he was like, nope, you still can't convert. So I guess that's two questions. Is is there such, can you be taking secular Judaism off the table? Can, are there Jewish atheists? And if so, why then couldn't she convert? So I'm going to say, first of all, I'm, I think you've phrased this question incredibly articulately. It's, it's as if you've been in lots and lots of meetings with Jews trying to figure out things about Jewish continuity and meaning. And like you're, right. you're practically a Jew yourself. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I, I won't make yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you could convert That's in five offensive. minutes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I would, I would personally perform your conversion. Um, the, the first thing I would say is, of course, lots of Jews are atheists. I imagine that the rabbi is saying, well, to convert, you have to jump through certain hoops and it has to be sincere. And for certain rabbis, actual sincere theistic belief is part of it. Um, so I think you know a lot of it depends on whom are you converting with, every rabbi, and then they put you before a panel of three rabbis, a, a baked in that has to approve it. I think she should just go rabbi shopping and find you – know, there, there, pl- there are plenty of rabbis who would welcome someone that committed r- right on in. But I don't know. Maybe oh. Liel and Stephanie see it differently. I see it differently. Um, you would, Liel. I am probably going to get m- more hate mail for this than anything I've said on this podcast, which is an Even achievement. the birding? Even the birding stuff, uh, I, I, I just don't think so. You know, I'm sorry. I know that there's, uh, I know it's sexy to see it as a sort of, um, you know, ethnicity, cultural. No, no, no. Just this, it's a religion. It's of a which religion. Is one part uh, of of which believing in a almighty creator is not one part. Mark, it is it is sort of a foundational tenet. Uh, without it, frankly, I don't see a point to this pursuit at all. Uh, we also uptight. Yeah. Stephanie, disagree. you want to break Why the tie there? Why are you there? turning anyone away? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm all about t- taking him in. Why are we like requiring that our religion be predicated well, it's also on a belief process. in God? I mean, maybe she's not a God believer now, but maybe after ten years. I mean, n- nobody's beliefs are the same every day, Liel. Right, we're, we're all in process. Shouldn't it be? That's absolutely correct, and I'm, 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 you know, very welcoming of that. But shouldn't it be kind of a foundational tenet of religion? To believe in an almighty creator? Is that too much to ask these days? It's a lot to ask. There's Chris, something about a club that won't let me join. Right. Chris Eigeman, we're going to call this the Eigeman question from now on. Oh, okay, great. And, and I, we shall tell about it to our children. That's right. <laughs> Every night before and their then. children. And their children. Will, so from generation to generation, this question will be asked. Um, you're invited to our Passover Seder. And thank you, thank you so much for joining us. We, we look forward to the new movie, to Trinity. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Take care. Hey, Stephanie, do you have any Mazel Tov this week? I do. I have a big Mazel Tov for my girls, Abby and Alana, who are back with season three of Broad City. Uh, first episode, pretty funny. Uh, I liked it. I'm, really I'm just, funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, happy they're back. Funny. I feel like they're just like friends that, that like, you know, were away for a little while and now like are back and, and I can hang out with them whenever I want. My Mazel Tov is to somebody I just read about this morning in the Times, Amina Suleiman, who is the leader of the four-person women's bicycling club in the Gaza Strip. Since Hamas took control of the Strip a decade ago and severely restricted women's participation in sports, these are apparently the first post-pubescent 
women to ride bicycles in public. Um, they're taking some crap for it, but we support you. We uh, endorse your bicycle riding. We hope that all the women of Gaza rise up against the tyranny of Hamas's anti-sports edicts and bicycle on bicycles built for one, two, or however many you can find. I would advocate that they just cycle on over the border to Israel where they could ride freely, but then I'll be accused of bicycle washing or cycle washing. Cycle washing. Um, so I won't do that. Well, you just did. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? My mazel tov, just to uh, keep up with the kids like uh, Stephanie with the cool pop culture references, my mazel tov is to George Eliot, whose uh, astonishing <laughs> proto-Zionist novel, Daniel Deronda, I just reread this week. Uh, and took me completely uh, by storm. It is an astonishing work that is highly recommended to and anyone who has the patience for an 816-page uh, novel from the 19th century. And doesn't it have a, a, a young Jewess named Rebecca in it? It's all about, she's not named Rebecca, but uh, she's named Mira. But it's, it's, all about, uh, it's all about Zionism, in fact. And it was uh, some years before Herzl. Uh, and it is amazing. Sorry, it's Adelaide Rebecca. There's an Adelaide Rebecca Cohen in Daniel Deronda. Google just told me. There is. She's a very minor character. I know, she's but she's there. As, she's referred it's to important as to my family because she spells Rebecca with a K the way my daughter does. So well, we, then, then there you have it. We cling to it. Daniel Deronda and the King James Bible, both. Hey, we're still looking for a mate for Shira Ginsburg, who joined us for our Valentine's Day episode. If you have a handsome and dashing male for her, probably between 35 and 50, drop us a line at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. That's also where you can send your mail. And as you know, we do read your mail on the air. Unorthodox is hosted by Leah Leibowitz, Stephanie Butnick, and Mark Oppenheimer. That's me. It's edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivory and Alyssa Goldstein. Kosher Slaughtering this week is by Jeb Bush. We miss you, Jeb. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and ask for it. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.